0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles.
0: And I'm Mike Simpson.
1: And here both of us are to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic.
0: We're getting closer each day to figuring out when and if a vaccine will be available. States and public health departments being asked to get ready to distribute by November 1st, maybe, but safe and effective vaccines might not be ready by then. And there are also all these questions, ethical concerns surrounding vaccinations. So we'll do a deep dive into these issues. We will
1: also get into how proper ventilation can keep the virus from spreading
0: around a room We're rebuilding. Ventilation is very important. Will the economy ever be the same again? What changes could be permanent? We will take a look ahead. And
1: farmers are also impacted by all of this. The food industry is trying to recover
0: to make sure we all have enough to eat. Everybody wants to know about this vaccine, so let's get to it. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, vice provost for Global Initiatives, co-director of the Health Transformation Institute, University of Pennsylvania. He served as a special advisor for health policy in the Obama White House. So, doctor, you're the co-author of this new paper on ethics of a vaccine in the journal Science. Uh, Who should get it? When? How this works? Take us through the main points.
2: We have 7.8 billion people in the world. If a vaccine against COVID gets proven... You know, even in an optimistic scenario, we might have one billion doses, maybe even two billion doses by the end of 2021. And that presents you with a major challenge of how to distribute it among countries. And then once it's given to a country within the country, how to distribute it. And so we analyze it and we say that the top priority ought to be reducing premature deaths in a country. And wherever the vaccine can do the most benefit by reducing premature deaths, they ought to get more vaccine. Um, And then a second goal after that's been accomplished is to alleviate the economic and social disruptions, the unemployment, poverty, the disruption of education. So that's how we prioritize countries. And that gives you some concrete rules. you know, sending vaccine to, to Taiwan or New Zealand, both of which have had, you know, just a handful of deaths, um, and less than about, uh, 500 cases, I think, in both countries, you know, it's not going to save a lot. Whereas sending it to Brazil or uh, Peru is going to save a lot more people. So that gives you a sense of how you might distribute it among countries.
0: I guess that depends on countries sharing, though. Do we know that everyone who hits on a vaccine is going to share it with everybody else?
2: Yeah, th- That's exactly right. And there has been a lot of talk in the public about wanting to, distribute a vaccine fairly and equitably, but ironically, if you ask, well, what's fairly and equitably, you get nothing. There's no information, and part of what our paper is trying to do is say, this is what fairly and equitably means. Interestingly, vaccine manufacturers like AstraZeneca or Eli Lilly's CEO have said they think a vaccine ought to be distributed equitably, and so we're appealing to them. Here's what it would mean if you want to do live up to your words Similarly, the WHO and other organizations like um, uh, Gavi have said that they're going to buy vaccine and then distribute them equitably. And so, again, we're giving them content uh, because we think that other proposals, there have been one or two other proposals in this area, they are definitely not ethical.
1: But, of course, as you know, um, every leader of every country scores points for his or or her own constituents by making sure that they can make an announcement that there's a vaccine and all of you folks are going to get it. So how do you get around that? Because at the end of the day, politics is really the art of the practical and political leaders want to stay in office, don't they?
2: Yes. So you're absolutely right. The president of the United States is not voted into office by the French or the British uh, much less people from, you know, other countries. So there's no reason to appeal. And they actually have a moral responsibility, uh, we think, to protect uh, the freedom and the well-being of the population and citizens uh, of their country. So that is true. But there it's not absolute. There's a limit to how much you ought to protect your own countrymen. Um, and that limit is, you know, get the virus down, control it, um, and once that's happened with enough vaccine, you should release the vaccine. You can't hoard vaccine. Uh, You need to actually, you know, protect your own citizens, but then release enough. And so that's what we're appealing to, is there's a limit to how much you can actually do for your own citizens. And remember, it's not just, uh, you know, politics is bigger. Uh, There is... uh, international power and prestige associated with taking a lead and helping other countries. They will long remember, other countries will long remember anything we do to help them out of this pandemic. So I think uh, it's a long range, prudent measure and in America's interest to be concerned about other countries.
0: All right, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Thanks so much. University of Pennsylvania. Oh, it's coming. I can almost I can
1: almost feel it an intense heat wave about to bear down on much of the western U.S., and that means people will be spending
0: lots of time indoors. And the virus loves to move indoors with limited air circulation. So that's when proper ventilation can help. Dr. Shelly Miller with the University of Colorado's College of Engineering and Applied Science talks to KCBS's Stan Bunger about the airborne spread of the virus.
3: There are a lot of ways you can just remove the contamination in your home with a, a local source control. Like when you turn on your hood and you're cooking, that will just suck the cooking emissions out of your house. And that's a great thing to do. But once you know, the air pollution gets in your home from smoke fires, then the way that you, especially if it's an outside source like smoke, then you need to clean your air with um, one of the best ways that I found is with a portable air cleaner.
4: Are there free floating virus particles in the air or are they attached to something like to liquid expelled from one's mouth and nose when exhaling?
3: They're always attached and surrounded by a a fluid that comes out of your respiratory tract. So you cannot, you will not find a naked virus just floating around.
4: Okay. Um, We know dilution is much better outdoors than indoors, but it would be nice to feel relatively safe in a large performing arts auditorium, uh, movie theater, restaurant. Is it possible to increase the number of air changes in an indoor building to mimic an outdoor environment?
3: That's the goal that we keep recommending, but many building systems have not been built to achieve high outdoor air um, flow. And so, you know, it can be a struggle for many locations to do this, but that's the goal is to increase the outside air coming into your space to mimic the outside.
4: And so does the air need to be filtered when it's pulled in to help with the issue we're discussing here, the potential of, of viral contamination, or is just outside air good enough?
3: Outside air is good enough. I mean, in your particular situation, your outside air is polluted right now with smoke, and so you will be bringing smoke into your (laughs) indoor environment. But if you're just looking at virus control, you know, outside air coming in will dilute any virus that's airborne in your space, and it will take out the airborne virus and dump it outside. So that's what you want.
4: Okay. Next question. Uh, During winter and flu season, I've noticed high condensation on train and bus windows. Commuter trains are packed like sardines. Windows can't be open in the Bay Area. Commute train service is relatively infrequent. Are we all inhaling that same condensed air?
3: So, yes, and I don't know what the the air change rates and how the air is filtered on the BARTs. Um, But I have worked with the New York subway, and they have quite high air changes that they filter the air. So it's a little bit misleading to rely on the condensation of your breath to infer what's going on with the air exchange rates in the in the cars. I think um, hopefully Bart will be providing that information to all of you who are riding the trains because that can tell you they're recirculating a lot of air very very quickly. Your uh, your CO two and your water that vapor that's coming out of your mouth does not is not impacted by that treatment of the air. So it's it's a little um, complicated, I would say.
4: And we've had this question in several iterations, so I'll just bring it back. And that's the question of using a fan. Good or bad?
3: I'm a little hesitant on fans. I don't want the air to be powerfully blown around a space, potentially blowing virus into a person as opposed to it just being more gently mixed into the space where then can be removed by ventilation. We have seen um, virus transmission happen in indoor environments that do not have enough outside air ventilation. And then the air is blowing um, with a high, high velocity fan and the virus is being swirled around and people get sick. So I'm a little bit hesitant on that.
4: Okay, next question. How effective is central air conditioning or heating with good filters installed? And maybe we should detour into what that might be. But uh, the question goes on to say, does it supplement air purifiers or is it something different?
3: So it depends on the filter that's installed in your central air or your central heating. and And this is usually used in your home, but it can be used. It's also used in commercial buildings. Where you just recirculate the inside air and you pass it over, um, you know, you you heat it and cool it as you're recirculating it, and if it's run through a very high efficiency filter, which we recommend MERV thirteen, then it can be as good as running a, a portable air cleaner in your space. It's cleaning the whole house or the whole room space. Uh,
4: and this is another question we've had a couple of times, um, and and people are curious. They've they've purchased these electrostatic air filters for their home heating system, a forced air system, or I guess an air conditioning system, are those of any value when dealing with uh, viral particles?
3: So those can promote particle removal once they're you know, ionized and charged. You want to make sure the device you're using has been certified as a no-ozone-producing Uh, technology because if it's not then it can release ozone into an occupied space and that is not good for you.
4: Okay and uh, you say ozone we also see the word plasma on the front of some of these air purifier units is that a plus of any kind?
3: Well so I think that is still this kind of technology that tries to generate these um, these ion fields with with different approaches and you know, again, those kinds of technologies have to be certified as as no ozone producing.
4: Okay. Um, next question: If I'm alone in a shared space, can I take my mask off? How long can aerosolized particles float around in the air in a room?
3: Well, so they can float lot, float around for hours, depending on what your ventilation rate is. If uh, what I've recommended to my teacher friends, if they're sharing an office. If they are going to come into a space or leave a space, they should have an air cleaner in there and turn it on so that when the next person comes in, the air has been treated. And then you can walk into the space and feel like, you know, that you are in a safe space and you can take your mask off.
4: And I guess that begs the question of uh, having the right size air purifier running for long enough. And there's probably a little math involved. Is this something the average person can sort out as to how long a room ought to be unoccupied with that purifier on to be safe?
3: Air cleaners, if they're um, if they're providing the right type of information for you, and that's the only kind I would recommend purchasing, will tell you what size of room they should be used in. And uh, Dr. Joe Allen and I and, and colleagues have provided an air cleaner calculator for people to use to figure out what they need to purchase, and that is that is freely available on the internet. But that information should be provided to you.
4: Dr. Miller, thanks so much for your time. I've
1: enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can do this again sometime. And please stay safe. Oh, you have to pity our economy. It could be permanently scarred from this pandemic and the shutdowns. This whole thing might lead to major and
0: lasting changes in how people shop and buy things. Some industries they might not ever recover or be the same again. Ron Insana, CNBC and MSNBC contributor. He hosts the Market Scoreboard Report. So, Ron, what'll be the new normal economy in the near and the distant future?
5: Well, nobody's quite sure yet, guys. I mean, obviously, if there were a, a bulletproof vaccine that everyone took and that worked uh, and gave everybody lasting immunity, we'd probably snap back to a a version of normal that we're we're comfortable with. But absent that, it does look like some of these changes that we've made in our behavior, as you indicated, whether it's work from home or maybe not going to the gym, putting one in your house, um, not getting too close to people in social settings like small restaurants. A lot of that could change. uh, Forever is a long time, but a lot of that could change for quite some time into the future. And, And again, have a disproportionate adverse impact on smaller businesses, while larger businesses take a bigger share of economic activity going forward.
0: Yeah, let's go down that road a little bit, and because it's going to take time to get a vaccine, um, at least most likely. So we have, you mentioned gyms, a lot of people, you know, they bought a Peloton or they bought weights, so they're not going to go I back did. to the gym. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, I know, like 10 people who bought Pelotons. Um, and then what usually happens, I guess, is if something goes out of business, there's uh, a little bit of waiting period, then someone comes and fills that void, either retail or office space. you don't have the building sitting vacant for that long, but maybe this time we do. And then if this is all going on for a really long time, the entrepreneurship just isn't going to be there because who's going to take that risk to get something off the ground if they're trying to save?
5: Yeah, I mean stuff that's directly customer facing in the in the manner that we're accustomed to it um is going away for a period of time and so you know opening a small shop a small retail operation when everybody can get whatever they want from amazon or from target or for walmart either going walmart safely or using their online presence same with amazon uh we don't have to work five days a week from the office we can even use zoom or any other kind of uh technology that's been quite popular and has done quite well in the stock market lately yeah all these changes um particularly, again, at the small business level, the medium-sized business level, and the stuff that's very high-touch, and that includes hospitality, travel, restaurants, all of that is likely to change for an extended period of time. Because, you know, honestly, does anybody really, even if it's, though it's safe or believed to be safe, want to get on a plane on a regular basis like we did just, you know, in 2019 and take multiple trips per year?
1: But here's, here's I guess, the the, the really big question, though, Ron. I mean, look, a lot of big companies that furloughed and let go people, a lot of those jobs, not coming back. A lot of the small businesses that are going out of business, not coming back. A lot of the people who are dependent on service industry jobs, for example, some will be okay, but a lot of those are not coming back. We're going to have, we already have, but we're going to have more, millions and millions of people, not only in this country, but around the world with no employment. What do we do?
5: Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that have to go on. I mean, first, you know, as we know, and, and this is not necessarily a plus for one's wage earning capability, but but you look at Amazon and Walmart and Target and uh, and McDonald's and, and and some others that are hiring more aggressively now in in the hundreds of thousands of workers. Having said that, at the moment. As of this morning's jobless claims data, we have 29 million people in the United States who are on some form of assistance, whether it's traditional state jobless benefits, pandemic assistance, or or something else. That's 18% of the nation's workforce. And so for those higher paid, more stable service and technology jobs that are going to be required in the future, we're going to need education and retraining, something that this government, and any government really in my lifetime, has not focused on adequately. Not since we did the moonshot. In the 60s, did we really gear our education system and our retraining system to help people transition uh, during periods of intense joblessness, whether it was a dozen years ago or whether it's now? Uh, it has to be done. And it's going to require a fair amount of federal assistance because we still need, in the absence of, of the unemployment rate that we had at the beginning of this year, 3.5 percent, we're now at 10 percent officially, probably closer to 18 percent for real. We need people to be able to migrate to those jobs. And some are ready
1: some simply
0: aren't. Ron Mm Insana, contributor to CNBC, MSNBC, host of the Markets Scoreboard Reports.
1: Just heard us talk about the economy, but we didn't mention a big part of it, farming. How are the country's farmers holding up six months
0: into this? Without them, no food, right? No food supply chain. John Urbanchuk, chairman of the Agribusiness Department, Delaware Valley University. He talks to KYW's Matt Leon about the current state of farming.
6: Well, I think there are two things. From a production agriculture perspective, the agriculture sectors, I think, responded very, very well. Uh, there have been burps, obviously, but we've overcome them and moved ahead. And, and that includes, in some cases, to the processing industry as well. The other problem that we ran into, and I think the biggest problem, was that the logistics chain had broken down. Remember when we talked earlier and the economy shut down? Virtually half of all food consumption went away, and that left producers really in the lurch because they had product they couldn't do anything with they had to make decisions with what they do in the future and what we've seen is one a tremendous amount of resilience a tremendous amount of innovation and imagination and we've pretty much overcome most of the hurdles that we faced and are dealing with them
7: i know we've talked about the importance of government aid for a lot of farmers i've read some stuff where that aid went out but it went a little top heavy, where a lot of the big farms got a lot, but smaller farms struggle to, to get the aid. Now, this is just anecdotal, a couple articles I read. I know you're plugged in with a lot of farmers that have come through your program and stuff like that. Uh, how did they, you know, as far as any discussions about uh, federal government aid and stuff like that, were they helped? Did you get a <laughs> lot of people that, that were able to, to utilize programs that were available?
6: Some were and some weren't. The program, the uh, CFAP funding program has been expanded. The deadlines have been extended. So, you know, anytime you've got a large government program, we had the same bureaucratic problems that we've had before. But generally speaking, I think the people that I've talked to have, have been, you know, they've benefited from it, maybe not as much as they would have liked or would like, but they've benefited from it. We still have a long way to go. But I think the government overall, and again, again, this is an overall statement, has been one proactive and I think really, really pretty responsive to the needs that most production agriculture has. They've added some additional commodities and additional products to the CPAP program and funding. Uh, we have this program, the uh, Farmer to Family Food Box program. I think they've distributed some in the area of about 47 million meals to people. And that that's another one of those examples of how we've sort of gotten around some of those logistics bottlenecks to get food from where it is to where it's needed. So I think on balance, while they probably could do a better job or do more, they've done a a reasonably decent job.
7: I shared with you one article I read where uh, a farmer did not plant 125 acres of corn because the demand wasn't there, made more sense to grow grass for his cows. Is that an outlier or have you heard of other farmers that didn't go for cash crops because the demand wasn't there, so they went another direction.
6: Well, that's quite clearly happened. Um, The USDA put an acreage report out in early July that reflected activity through mid-May to the end of June. And they reported that corn farmers, uh, that that as of like the end of June, there were about 2.2 million acres of corn left unplanted. Now, that's getting pretty late to put that stuff in. So that's land that's probably not going to go into corn and probably won't go into soybeans either because there were a lot more acres of soybeans that were left unplanted. So yeah, people have, uh, some people have decided they're not going to produce at a loss. And the primary concern was a lack of market. Now, in corn, when you're taking a look at corn, the big problem the corn industry has faced has been the collapse of the ethanol industry. Feed demand held up reasonably well, but ethanol accounts for almost 40% of domestic corn demand. And when people stopped driving, gasoline demand fell and so did ethanol, uh, ethanol production. Now it's come back up again, it's recovered, but when people were looking at that saying, Gee, you know, the market's not gonna be there, I'm not gonna plant and lose money, I'll figure something else out to do. But again, it's, it's in the grand scheme of things, it's not, I don't think it's gonna have that much of a negative impact. Uh, on production and prices will maybe a little higher than USDA projected they would be, which is good for farmers actually. But yeah, that and people are people are making those decisions. They're not deciding not to produce anything. They're deciding they're making decisions. You know, it, it, plant grass or plant some forage crop so they can use in another another activity, and then that land will be back into corn production next year.
1: Some happy endings do exist in the middle of this pandemic. A little dog was with her owners as they were sailing around the world. But the family had to abandon those plans in March with countries closing their borders. They docked in South Carolina, flew home to Australia without Pep, their dachshund. She wasn't allowed to go with them. Pip was put in a temporary home. I think we well, need like violin music here. After a lot of searching.
0: I feel so yeah, bad for
1: Pip. I know. <laughs> they booked a flight for Pep out of L.A. and headed to New Zealand. But someone, someone, anyone, had to fly with Pip to L.A. So, a rescue organization helped out. Pip landed in New Zealand, eventually headed up in Melbourne, Australia. Then she was put in quarantine for 10 days, but her flight to Sydney was canceled early last month when there were state border closures. Well, this all came to the attention of officials at Virgin Australia, which announced it would fly Pip home. It did. And now she's back with her family
0: after a huge ordeal. Poor dog. Poor dog. But also, everyone's like thinking of life before the pandemic. And then there's just families. Like, what were you doing before all this? Well, we were sailing around the world. Yeah, well, <laughs> well that's true too. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> it's life. But but poor Pip. Yeah. Poor, Pip. I mean, poor Pip. No Pip. idea what was going Pip had, on. Yeah, no idea. Or where you know, everyone
1: was. Pip's wondering why is everyone wearing masks and keeping six feet away from her. We
0: are happy that they're all back together. Yes. Uh, listen to us on the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.